This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The microbiome, the community of bacteria that live within and on our bodies, has become an area of increasing interest to drug developers who see the potential to both target these microorganisms and exploit them for therapeutic benefit. Scioto Biosciences has developed a biofilm platform that it believes can better deliver and protect beneficial bacteria to treat disease. The lead indication the company is pursuing is necrotizing Enterocolitis, a rare condition primarily affecting premature newborns that leads to portions of the bowel to die. We spoke to Joe Trebley, CEO of Sciota, about the microbiome, the company's platform technology, and how it's exploiting something usually thought of in the context of pathogenic bacteria to help beneficial bacteria thrive. Joe, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. We're going to talk about the microbiome, Sciota Biosciences, and your effort to develop therapies for a range of disorders using your biofilm platform technology. Let's start with the microbiome, though. This has become an area of great therapeutic interest, both for potential targets and, and for living therapies. Can you explain what the microbiome is and, and why it's become an area of such interest among therapeutics developers? I sure can. Uh, it's certainly an exciting area of research and and therapeutic development, as you say. The, um, the way that I define it, and there's probably you know, lots of ways to define it, but I think the easiest way to think about it is you know the microbiome is everything that is in uh, in us and on us that's not us. Um, and so, you know, when you really look at just our makeup, you know, we are just sheer number of cells. Uh, there are far more bacteria that make us, make up us than there are even human cells. So, um, these creatures and, and, um, other life forms have been living symbiotic with us, you know, forever. Uh, we've actually developed together. And, but up until now, they, they've been, largely as a, as a nuisance and a source of pathology and infection. And I think really the nuance over the last, you know, decade or two has been uh, the understanding that, you know, many of, of these life forms that, that live in and on us are actually, you know, there to help and serve a purpose uh, beyond, you know, far beyond just uh, infection. And, and so as we, as we think about that, uh, it has a number of different consequences as we, you know, as we treat patients uh, for a number of different disorders. Um, and so how we can 
you know, leverage this new, more nuanced understanding and appreciation for these um, life forms that, you know, how maybe they can be drugs themselves. Uh, there's certainly opportunity for a number of different traditional drug target identification and validation with, within the microbiome um, in, the, in these life forms. And, you know, really we just, we, we have to be more conscious of, of what effect these have on uh, the treatments that we're currently uh, using for patients, but also, you know, it's, there's just an exciting amount of opportunity to see what kind of opportunities there are for developing new treatments uh, with this more nuanced understanding. I, I think people tend to think of the microbiome in terms of gut diseases, but their therapeutic potential of the microbiome is by no means limited to the gut. There are microbiomes throughout the body. What's the potential therapeutic range you're looking at, and how are you prioritizing the indications you're pursuing? Yeah, that is a really great question. I think that it's one that many of us in the field are giving a lot of thought to, because uh, as you say, you know, the microbiome is everywhere on the skin, you know, even in the blood, believe it or not. Um, and so how do we how do we begin to approach this um, really jungle of new information and new opportunity? And I think, you know, from our perspective, um, you know, we, we're coming at it from kind of maybe a, a simple point of view, but a powerful one, I think, in that if you look at other drugs in development uh, in the past, you know, hormone replacement therapies, enzyme replacement therapies, you know, it's, it's the uh, identifying an opportunity where, you know, finding that a, a per particular uh, patient is deficient in something and then, and then giving it back. Um, and so that's, that's one thing that we're mindful of when we approach this new, new field. The other thing is, is looking for opportunities where there's what, what we would call an ecological niche. Um, and that is, uh, when, if you think about your microbiome, uh, GI or elsewhere, as a forest, um, a G ecological niche might be, you know, up to when, when there's a forest fire and the forest has been bur burned down and, and then has to be regrown. Uh, and there's a series of plants and organisms that will, will develop in sequence, uh, not concurrently. You know, you're, you're probably, you know, the, the grass and, you know, the lower shrubbery is going to develop first. But then, you know, as the trees grow and you have a canopy uh, and shade and, and those trees are going to grow, but the, you know, the grass and the lower shrubbery and, and plant life isn't going to thrive anymore. So there's a sequence to any ecology that has to develop, but there has to be a niche in order to, to, to begin that process. And so as you look at, you know, the therapeutic landscape, you know, we're really interested in those places where there is an ecological niche. Uh, for example, in a newborn baby. Uh, is a naive system, uh, ready to be exposed. Some are better than, some are exposed in a more healthy environment than others. Um, another example is, you know, post antibiotic, you know, during or post antibiotic use, um, a great opportunity to go in and, and rebuild, uh, the, you know, the ecological system of the microbiome. Um, and the reality is it's going to be rebuilt one way or the other. You, 
and, and we think that that's a good opportunity to steer the development. But other places like uh, chemotherapy and radiation, you know, well documented now that you know all these these therapeutic interventions that we do uh, have a dramatic impact on the microbiome. Now there are other opportunities that are clearly out there. You know, not just in GI disorders, but also metabolic disease, obesity, uh, neurological disorders. You know, it's remarkable some of the um, fecal material transplant data that's coming back when you know, patients uh, have neurological disorders like Parkinson's that are getting better. There's clearly an opportunity to intervene there, but our focus is largely where there are ecological niches where that we think we can begin to rebuild the microbiome from, uh, from, from more of a baseline. Well, what's the, the case for this as a therapeutic approach in general? What what makes the microbiome compelling from a therapeutic approach? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of ways to approach that question. Um, one, I, I think, is kind of, you know, from a cost perspective, um, you know, you take commensal bacteria that you can, that you can grow and ferment, uh, it's a relatively cheap way to make drugs. Um, you know, dr- a drug that grows itself is, is really, uh, attractive in many ways. But there are, you know, anaerobic and aerobic, you know, products that might be more, more difficult or less difficult, uh, in that. But, but certainly an attractive idea that we can take these safe, uh, commensal bacteria. And what I mean by commensal is that these are bacteria that we would expect to find or have been isolated as a natural partner uh, with, with humans or with, with another animal. Um, so we can take these human commensals and we can simply give back to the patient what they should already have anyway. And so there's an opportunity there that this is a cheap and effective way. But I think really the, you know, what's exciting is, is the, what's driving the field is the efficacy that we're seeing with bacterial uh, therapies and you know what's kind of interesting to think about. You know we're we're used to approaching therapies that sort of you know in a very mono mechanistic way. You know we give one drug that does one thing at one target um, and then we dose that appropriately. Well, you know in many cases, you know, bacteria are drug producing organisms that um, when inside uh, and in their appropriate place within their host. They do a number of things, uh, including, you know, knock down bacteria, repress uh, immune responses, um, or modulate immune responses, uh, induce proliferation of mucosal lining. Um, you know, they, they really are multifunctional, and so you kind of, and then, and they, you know, the other thing is that they can be genetically engineered to perform tasks like produce proteins and the like, and so there really is an opportunity. Uh, to take something that could be relatively cheap, um, but multifunctional, uh, and, and give that back to the host and, and, and produce a positive therapeutic effect or even just, you know, maintenance or improvement of health. Biofilms are usually thought of in terms of pathogenic bacteria. Mm-hmm. You're working with biofilms to try to develop them as potential therapies. Can you explain what biofilms are and, and how you're looking at them? Yeah, that's really the the heart of the innovation behind biota biosciences and that really originated 
um, with some scientists at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, uh, Dr. Steve Goodman and Lauren, Dr. Lauren Bakelet. They're really um, thought leaders, mavens in the field of microbiology and studying biofilms. And, you know, for the last few decades, they've been studying it in the context, as you say, uh, pathogenic bacteria. And most of us are familiar with biofilms in that context. And but for those who aren't, the you know the bio you know bacteria exist um, in a number of different states. Maybe the two that we discussed today are you know, a planktonic state, which is what we call planktonic, which is free floating, uh, non in not in a colony per se. Um, but what happens is when these bacteria begin to colonize, they they take it a step further. And they begin to maybe call them you know, hypercolonize and begin to form together in these biofilms. And you know, in the biofilm state, they begin to create extra uh, cellular material uh, that's beyond even just the, the the cell of the bacteria. And in doing so, there's a number of different quorum sensing mechanisms that are that are uh, activated. There's protective, both physical and chemical protective. Um, mechanisms that are activated, and in a sense, what this does is in a biofilm state, they're just really, really hard to kill, and they're also very much more active uh, in in that state. And so, the context of you know these, these have been studied for the last few decades is that hey, you know, if you're really trying to get rid of an infection, uh, and again, microbiome in the past has been just kind of a nuisance that we want to get rid of, so that's the context of how they've approached this. And our, our scientific founders have spent their life trying to figure out, you know, how do you, how do you tear apart a biofilm or how do you, how do you make it therapeutically, um, uh, how can you, how can you attack it with a therapeutic? And what really the exciting thing happened was, you know, kind of the aha moment with this nuanced realization that the microbiome plays a different role. They, uh, teamed up with a couple other, uh, scientists. One, Mike Bailey, who's, who's an expert in, you know, the, you know, the effects of stress on the microbiome and the effects of the microbiome on stress, uh, both, both ways. Um, and then Dr. Gail Besner, who is a chief of pediatric surgery there at Nationwide Children's Hospital, and she's an expert in, uh, a disorder in infants called necrotizing enterocolitis. So what the four of them did essentially over a couple of years Work uh, would demonstrate that this biofilm uh, phenomenon, um, while not helpful, uh, the opposite of helpful and detrimental in the case of pathogenic bacteria, in the case of potentially therapeutic bacteria, it was actually enhancing efficacy um, of some promising bacteria and making it you know, persistent in ways that would make it more druggable. Really, create best-in-class drugs out of bacterial therapeutics, things like uh, making them resistant to low pH and, and gastric acid, um, also enhancing the functions that we know to be important for their mechanism of action as a therapeutic, uh, and a number of different things. And, and so it's really that concept of taking something that was studied for years in one context, and completely flipping it on the head. And, of course, this has the advantage of being a completely natural process. Uh, nothing has to be engineered. Uh, you just have to give the, the bacteria the right kind of surface and the right kind of food, uh, and, and it will do the work for you. 
And so being able to take advantage of that natural process is, you know, a real opportunity when you think about how do you create best-in-class bacterial therapeutics. And so that's really kind of how, that's what a biofilm is. And the reality is, is that, you know, there's really no difference in the mechanism between a pathogenic bacteria biofilm and a, and a good biofilm. Other than that, you know, they, they need different triggers to form given the strain of bacteria. And so, you know, our platform is, is just that is, you know, how do you take good bacteria and provide these triggers to form the biofilm, uh, prior to administration? And it's remarkable, uh, how much better they perform. And how do you formulate these? Are, are, are they single bacteria strains or are they complex communities? It can be either. Um, you know, the, it, it depends. I mean, um, but essentially the, the current formulation is, is a liquid formulation that's mixed on site. And so you can envision a, a powder bacteria, uh, alkalized bacteria, and then a solution of microparticles and sugar. Uh, you just mix those two. Uh, and like I said, this is a, this is a very, uh, aggressive natural phenomenon that you know, is, it happens very rapidly and it's hard to stop, quite frankly. Um, and so when you mix that, the biofilm forms, you know, very quickly and, and then you just drink the liquid and we're talking just, you know, tens of milliliters. So it's not, it's not much, uh, to drink, but, um, just, just with that, um, type of formulation, you can activate the biofilm and, and administer it therapeutically. Well, you made reference to necrotizing enter. Enterocolitis, which is your, right, your right. initial art indication, it's a rare condition that afflicts mostly newborns. What is necrotizing mm-hmm. enterocolitis, and what's the prognosis for someone with that condition? Yeah, you know, and, and this really um, comes from some of the, the good work of Dr. Gail Besner, and she's she's a world thought leader with NEC, and what, what she'll tell you is that. You know, up to about 10% of all babies born prematurely are at risk. You know, they're, they're all at risk of developing this, but only, you know, up to 10% of them will, will do, will develop it. And, you know, the sad thing is there's really nothing to do once the baby starts progressing, uh, towards, um, this disorder. And what it is essentially is, is, uh, degradation of the intestinal lighting in, in the GI tract. Um, and can happen in a number of different places, but uh, the reality is, is as the baby starts to have uh, problems and, and drift to this direction, the only real thing that the physician can do is put the baby on food rest, kind of sit and wait. And many times it's been treated with antibiotics, uh, seen as, a, uh, as, as an infection problem. Uh, we know now that that might not be the best thing to do. Um, and unfortunately, uh, a lot of these babies progress to the point where they need surgery and that the surgeon has to go in and resect the part of the bowel that has begun to die. And that, that, that surgery has about a 50% mortality rate. And so as you can envision, the surgeons don't like to do that, uh, that surgery. It's an awful disorder. Um, you know, not only does it have effects of the baby's health in the NICU, it also affects that even the, the babies that, that do survive and make it out, they have a really a lifelong struggle uh, with GI disorders because, you know, there's there's a developmental uh, gaps there uh, that, you know, they're probably going to be 
uh, working to, to overcome their whole life. And so there's a really, and, and as we, as we talked earlier about ecological niches, this is, a, this is a very naive system and a great place to begin to understand how, how intervening with the microbiome works. And, um, and so that's one of our, that, that's why we're excited about, about NEC and, and developing treatment for it. And, you know, the work done at Nationwide Children's Hospital, you know, Dr. Besner says this, you know, she's, she's worked with the animal models of this disorder, uh, for, for, for years now. She's thrown every therapeutic du jour at them, including exosomes, growth factors, stem cells, you know, you name it. And, you know, when I first, we first met and we started talking about this, she said, you know, Joe, I've, I've never seen anything like this. Um, nothing anywhere close to this effective. And so, you know, when someone like Dr. Bezner tells you something like that, uh, with her level of experience, you know, you get pretty excited because uh, I think we're really on to something here. And, and what does the biofilm therapy actually do for these patients? Yeah, so for, uh, you know, for infants, and again, this understanding is really just, you know, no more than a couple decades old, but you can track the microbiome development of an infant, and, and those, and many have, and we're still understanding it. What we know is that there are a few bacteria that the baby needs early on. Um, or at least it's, it's present in healthy babies early on and not there in patients that, you know, get them, in babies that get themselves in trouble. Um, and one of those bacteria, uh, and, and they probably get this from mom, um, it's not clear how, uh, exactly, but, uh, one of those bacteria is a bacteria called Lactobacillus ruteri. And we believe this bacteria to be what we call a pioneer bug, uh, one that goes in and establishes, um, you know, the beginning of a healthy ecological development. Now, if you think about, so it really is kind of the seed that's planted, uh, to begin, uh, setting the stage for other microbes to, you know, healthy microbes to, to come into play. And so we think you need that. And often the baby will get it from the vaginal canal, uh, from exposure uh, to the skin on the breast or other, other skin from mom, uh, but also in breast milk. And so you can, uh, you can find lactobacillus ruteri in around it uh, on mom, uh, particularly a mom that's reached, you know, the end of her third trimester. Um, but the reality is those babies in the NICU might not and probably don't get the exposure that they need to that bacteria. So the opportunity there is go into an intervention of lactobacillus ruteri and plant the seed for a healthy microbiome growth. And if you, and, and, but and others have tried to do this and, and, and there are, there are those that are going in with daily dosing of lactobacillus ruteri to establish the niche uh, and continue to, to work. But I think, you know, the difference between our formulation and those is, you know, much like the difference between going in and planting seed or going in and laying sod. Uh, and we think, you know, the, our formulation is more like going in and, and putting sod down, uh, and, and very quickly establishing, uh, the right, um, you know, the right bacteria in, in the right active form to treat the disease. And so in doing that, you know, you see, you know, the, Leaky gut of these babies begin to close up. Uh, you, you, you see inflammation markers go down. Um, these are all signs of a healthy uh, GI system. And we think many of those aspects are driven, at least in a large part, by the microbiome that is also developing 
within the GI system of these babies. And so this is a really great opportunity to go in and intervene. And, and honestly, you know, uh, we can do a lot of good, not just for these babies in the NICU, while they're in the NICU, but, you know, all, you know, not just for neck, but other GI disorders that babies in the NICU have is, is probably, you know, in, in very large part due to the lack of development of the GI microbiome. And so we, if we think we can fix this problem, we can't just, we can, we can we can fix neck, but we can also fix a number of different other GI disorders like feeding dis feeding disruptions and the, and the like in the NICU. And then overall, you know, we're going to really improve that baby's life in the NICU or in the, and her health in the NICU, but also you know her health as she you know, leaves the NICU and and you know, you know, faces life with a more uh, GI system that's more and more developed in a more healthy way. And what's the clinical path forward? Yeah, so we, uh, we've, we've been working really close with the FDA, uh, to think about this and safety, uh, going into, particularly for neck, you know, we're going into a very vulnerable patient population. And so, you know, I, you know, FDA gets a lot of criticism, but I gotta tell you, they've been tremendously helpful, uh, uh to work with. Um, really they've made us better in thinking about how, how to do this. And, and so we, we've met with them and we've established a strategy where we're going to go uh, and, we'll, and we'll do, we'll begin this trial uh, Q1 of next year. Um, oh, no, it's this year. <laughs> Q, this this uh, 2019 uh, in, in February or March, we'll begin our uh, phase one clinical study in healthy adults. Uh, and then as, as once that's passed, we'll, we'll move into the NICU uh, to begin showing uh, safety and efficacy in, in the NICU. And are there other indications you're pursuing at this time? Is there a pipeline behind this? There absolutely is. Not just you know the idea that we can we can apply this to a number of different bacteria, but uh, Lactobacillus ruteri itself is a bit of a workhorse uh, in that we think it can be used uh, in a number of different situations where you need to build a healthy microbiome from scratch from zero. Uh, one of those has been published. Um, our, our collaborators at NCH actually presented the data at the American Academy of Pediatrics, and that is, you know, the same formulation that we've been using in the neck models is also effective in preventing uh, the damage and disorder uh, brought about by uh, Clostridium difficile infection, which is a really nasty infection. That often follows aggressive um, antibiotic use, and it's it, you know, one of the worst uh, outcomes and, and complications of antibiotic use. And, and so, what Dr. Besner did was establish that model uh, in an animal and show that you know, in treating a, with just a single dose. And I think that's one of the things that's remarkable of our platform, and and probably most surprising when you you see other bacterial therapeutics they require multiple doses, multiple strains, all the effects that we've seen have been with a single strain or with a single dose. And and, and that and that single strain, single dose aspect is is dependent on biofilm formation. So if you can do that, it appears that you can you can establish with a single dose an effective uh, dose of therapy. Um, and we've seen that both with neck, but now we've also seen that with, with C. diff. And we think that, you know, you can expand to other areas where, again, there's been an established ecological niche where, and then where we're leaky GI uh, and inflammation 
are the cause or the underlying culprit for a number of different disorders. We think you can apply the lactobacillus ruteri product uh, to those. But again, this is a this is a platform and an idea that uh, can be expanded to other bacterial therapeutics beyond just lactobacillus ruteri. But we're focused at least initially on developing our ruteri uh, for all these different indications, both back C diff uh, and in other areas. And we also think this has some uh, application in animal health as well. Um, you know, things uh, in terms of both companion animals and, and livestock pr- production animals, uh, we think there's a lot of opportunity given the low cost of the, um, you know, the, the cost of goods and um, just the sheer number of opportunities. We think we could uh, apply this platform to those as, as well. So there's a there's a lot to look forward to. There's a very healthy pipeline currently and. And an even bigger one growing uh, for Sciota. Joe Trebley, CEO of Sciota Biosciences. Joe, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, thank you, Daniel. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.